Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 7, Capitalism, Part 1. In the last few episodes, we examined the opening stages of the Cold War in Eastern Europe and some of the major political figures involved. In this episode, I want to examine the structure of capitalism in the West, especially the United States, before we examine the United States' response to Stalin's moves in Eastern Europe. The reason it's important to examine the construction of capitalism in the West is like Marxist ideology, which we examined in Episode 3, capitalism shaped the values and ideas of the people and leaders of the West and informed their decision-making process in the Cold War. The Cold War was primarily an ideological struggle, and although strategic, political, and economic forces helped form the conflict, ideology was a driving factor. Therefore, it's vital for us to understand the mentality of the capitalist forces, just as much as it is for us to understand the mentality of the Marxist forces. This episode is not a critique of capitalism, nor is it an endorsement. It is fundamentally an examination of the system to better understand the Cold War period. Granted, everyone has internal biases, but I will strive to give you a balanced account of the system and historical period. Before we go any further, it's important for me to outline my definition of capitalism so that we are all on the same page. Capitalism is a social, economic, and cultural system that respects private property. The economy, or the marketplace, is primarily decentralized. Trade and industry are primarily controlled by private ownership for profit rather than the state. Legal jurisprudence is used to resolve business disputes and limits the power of the state to interfere with the market or private business. For instance, GM can sue the U.S. federal government, which would be impossible under communism or fascism. A private credit system exists, and most people have a general ambition to acquire more wealth. In capitalism, the market primarily defines who is and who is not successful in life monetarily. LeBron James makes millions because of his basketball skills versus most doctors. Millions in the free market value his skills highly as a form of entertainment, whereas the skills and appeal of a doctor has a small audience willing to pay far less for his skill set. This is in contrast to a system like the former GDR, or East Germany, that held up artists based on their artistic support for the party or their influence with party leadership. Unlike some academics, I do not believe that capitalism requires a democratic government. I would point to contemporary China and Singapore as authoritarian systems that have adopted successful forms of capitalism. That being said, capitalism, like we saw with Marxism, exists on a spectrum of belief and changes over time. The capitalist structure of the United States was different from Britain in 1950, and the British capitalist system in 1991 was different from the capitalist structure of Britain in 1950. Moreover, I will only be dealing with the formation of capitalism up to and during the Cold War, so this examination of capitalism effectively ends in 1991. Nevertheless, many of the arguments and topics outlined in this episode will be very familiar to our own time and personal lives. Debates about capitalism are at the heart of some of the most contentious issues of our day, ranging from issues of healthcare, globalization, poverty, global warming, social inequality, and the cost of human progress. The system we know today as capitalism went through roughly four phases of development, classical trade, merchant capitalism, industrial capitalism, and consumer capitalism. The first phase of capitalism dates back to the dawn of civilization and was centered on trade and the growth of cities and markets. These societies were built on the bedrock of scarcity. 
Famine was a common occurrence, and the people and economy was primarily focused around the production of food and related industries. What little manufacturing there was went on in the household, where people turned fibers into fabric. Customs, not incentives, promoted the action and dictated the flow of work throughout the year. Different economists and historians argue when capitalism actually began. What we do know is that trading and the occupation of merchants stretches back to ancient Mesopotamia, where we have records and receipts of transactions between private individuals on clay tablets in cuneiform from around 3400 BC. We assume that most trade was local or regional, although evidence exists that some long-distance trade routes did exist in the ancient world. From what we understand, early global trade was primarily focused between the great civilizations of the Mediterranean, like Greece, Egypt, Carthage, and Rome, linked to the civilizations of the Middle East, like Persia or Babylon, then to India and ancient China. This trade was established through overland routes and the Indian Ocean. This early trade system was extremely fragile, and trade was primarily carried out by private merchants. Although some government-sponsored trade missions did occur from time to time, such as the Egyptian trade expeditions to Punt, circa 2500 BC. Moreover, very few, if any, merchants crossed the extent of these trading systems. Many traded goods back and forth in their local and regional markets in a vast network of middlemen. It goes without saying that trading was a hazardous venture. Merchants had to deal with the ever-present danger of bandits, pirates, and disease. This was a time before GPS, reliable maps, or the Weather Channel becoming lost or shipwrecked by storm were real dangers. These trade routes were vulnerable as well to disease, natural disaster, political upheavals, and war, and could be disrupted for years or even decades. Nevertheless, the rise of long-distance trade had domestic impact as prosperous cities grew up along these trade routes, becoming engines of culture and seats of government, living off the wealth of trade and extracting the wealth of the countryside in the form of taxes. With this developed bureaucracy and specialization or occupations outside farming like soldiers or priests. To be sure, the vast majority of people still lived in rural agricultural settings and were involved in subsistence farming versus living in a city or becoming a priest or bureaucrat. Some estimates of 80% of the population were still involved in farming. By the Middle Ages, we start to see the development of credit, especially in the Islamic world. In Arabia, advanced credit systems were created with checks and bills of exchange. Merchants had the ability to lend capital to other merchants, or in some cases non-merchants like kings, in the hope of achieving profit on their initial investment through the use of interest. In this way, merchants could travel between locations more conveniently without the danger and hassle of carrying large sums of money on their persons. Merchants also band together to form caravans and fleets when trading over long distances for better protection from pirates and bandits. Europe, by the Middle Ages, after the fall of the Roman Empire, had become an economic backwater in the political chaos that ensued. In the High Middle Ages, circa 1000 AD, a semblance of stable states or kingdoms were established. Europe was fragmented between not only different political states, but the church, which exercised political power throughout Europe, often clashing with European kings. Additionally, the system of feudalism created a confusing patchwork of semi-autonomous cities and principalities that operated independently and often fought against each other. The world economy by this time was primarily based around China and India, which had the greatest producing power as a result of having the most people and the greatest markets in the world. 
The Islamic world as well was extremely wealthy and technologically sophisticated with advances in the field of math and philosophy. By the 1300s, merchants in Europe started to combine their resources to form short-term companies that would last for a period of up to seven years. They shared frequently in very high profits of up to 15 to 20 percent. A hundred years later, Europeans, especially Italians, began the practice of double-entry bookkeeping, which juxtaposed debt and credit precisely so that both sides of the ledger were instantly retrievable, the medieval equivalent of Excel spreadsheets. However, Europe remained relatively poor in comparison to the Islamic, Indian, or Chinese civilizations. Europe suffered from a quasi-trade imbalance. They had few goods desired outside of Europe and had a great demand for goods from China and India, most notably spices and silk. Moreover, Europe's trade with India and China was taxed by the Islamic world, especially the Ottoman Empire, which controlled the physical land routes to Asia and India and the Venetian Empire, which militarily and economically dominated trade in the eastern Mediterranean. Both the Venetians and the Ottomans charged high fees for the transport of goods through their lands, ports, and seas, which pushed up the price of business for already struggling merchants. Portugal and Spain were the first nations to attempt to work around the Venetian and Ottomans. Henry the Navigator and the Portuguese came up with a plan to sail down the coast of Africa, establishing settlements in the hopes of rounding Africa and entering the Indian Ocean, therefore bypassing both the Venetians and the Ottomans and establishing trade with India, which Vasco da Gama had achieved by 1498. However, the Portuguese quickly discovered that they had very little value to trade in the Indian market. So they turned to piracy and eventually took control of trade in the Indian Ocean, controlling the regional sea trade routes. For a time, Portugal, a nation of a million, succeeded in imposing its will on the Chinese, Arabs, and Venetians who had long plied these waters. They traded weapons and tools to Africa, silver and gold to China, Chinese goods to Japan, and spices and silks back to Europe. From spices to slaves, they conducted business around the world through some 50 settlements that they defended against all comers. Spain, via Columbus, tried to sail west to reach India and China, but bumped into the North American continent. Taking advantage of the situation, Spain went about the process of subduing the native populations, which was made easier by disease. Historical demographers put the pre-Columbian population of North and South America at 90 to 100 million people. Measles, smallpox, typhus, and many other diseases wiped out whole tribes. It's estimated that disease wiped out about 90% of the native population, leaving about 10 million. With the native peoples conquered, Spain set about extracting all the available gold and silver. When all the plunder was gone from the Mayans, Aztecs, and Incas, the Spanish forced the remaining natives into a brutal slavery, mining for more gold and silver. This gold and silver was used to fund wars in Europe, most notably the Eighty Years' War and the failed Spanish Armada. This silver and gold was then used by Italian and Dutch bankers to purchase goods from China and India. Even with all this gold and silver, Spain misallocated its newfound treasures and bankrupted herself on five different occasions in 1557, 1560, 1569, 1575, and 1596, and caused massive inflation in Europe. Spain's financial situation grew so bad that by 1564, Spanish treasure ships sailed directly from the Americas to Amsterdam to pay on Spain's enormous debt. Many Spanish treasure ships never made it to Spain or Holland as they were pirated on the 
on course by British, French, and Dutch pirates. Spanish settlements also came under attack. Most famously, Sir Francis Drake, an English privateer, on one occasion captured San Domingo. He freed the slaves, burned the city to the ground, destroyed the ships in the harbor, and received a ransom fee for returning what was left to the Spanish. Taxes in both Spain and Portugal remained high despite the influx of gold and silver, and the population remained destitute. The vast majority of the wealth went to the elites of the Iberian society. Despite these advances in credit, navigation, and conquest, European society was still not truly capitalist in the modern sense. European society was aristocratic and hierarchical. Noble and gentry families were the celebrities of the pre-modern era. They contributed to the arts, tastes, style, and learning. They were the only candidates for higher positions at court, in the military, or the church. They inherited these positions through birth. It was not what you did in life, but who you were, that mattered. Even in the medieval republics of Florence and Venice, urban oligarchies ran the cities, and aristocratic values commanded great respect. People believed that inequality was a natural part of the world. By the 15th century, we see the evolution of capitalism from classical trade into merchant capitalism in Holland and later Great Britain. After the Dutch received independence from Spain, they established a loose confederation with each province headed by a prominent merchant, which made the new Dutch state very pro-business. They offered more protection to merchants, free ports, pro-business laws, made maritime insurance available, and had children learn financial bookkeeping at school. Amsterdam offered refuge to dissenters and free thinkers of the period, which combined with high literacy rates and freedom to publish most materials made Holland an intellectual powerhouse or the Silicon Valley of its day. The English envied the Dutch. They tried to emulate the Dutch example. English aristocrats embraced merchants and tradesmen, taking a keen interest to grow their personal wealth. Commerce had champions in the highest ranks of society, including the House of Commons. England was also different from continental Europe in that they had a large population of yeomen or small land-holding farmers as a result of the Black Death. England also freed up the usury laws to get more credit into the market. The medieval Catholic Church made it difficult for people to lend money because of its prohibition in the Bible. Nevertheless, with the split of the Church of England from the Catholic Church in 1534, it allowed King Henry VIII and Elizabeth I to establish a 10% ceiling on the amount of interest that could be charged. This gave merchants greater flexibility in making investments and taking risks. Merchant capitalism greatly expanded Europe's influence in the world. In 1500, European powers controlled about 5% of the world's territory. By 1775, European powers controlled 35% of the Earth's territory. This expansion was driven by four elements, the Enlightenment, advanced weaponry, and the ever-growing demand for new markets and prestige. The Enlightenment witnessed a rebirth and embrace of science and rational thought in Europe. Europeans began to think differently about themselves and others, fundamentally changing their organizational methods and interest in technology. Europe had always been creative when it came to warfare, especially as they were constantly warring against themselves, but warfare, coupled with the ideas in the Enlightenment, pushed forward Europe's ideas of war, shipbuilding, and cannons. By the 1600s, Europe had taken the lead in maritime technology and dominated the world's maritime trade routes. This gave the Europeans the ability to project power overseas. It might have been true that the Mughals or Chinese were still greater civilizations in the 1700s, 
but they lacked the ability to send ships to Europe, and they had lost control of the world's sea lanes to Europe. The European markets were hungry for new exotic luxuries from around the world. Spices, fabrics, furs, paper, and perfumed woods stimulated demand in Europe. Bland foods were brought to life with cinnamon, cloves, and nutmeg. Salt and sugar, both rare and expensive in Europe, became more available as the Dutch, British, and French ships expanded global trade. Animals and plants such as corn and potatoes brought from the Americas changed the global economy as well with new foodstuffs. Starting in the 18th century, a small consumer market began to develop, especially in Britain. Sugar, tea, and tobacco, throwaway pipes, and pocket watches all became products most subjects could afford and were consumed on a large scale. There was said to be about four to 500 coffee houses in London by 1700. The Europeans also wanted to establish trading missions in other lands and colonies to extract natural resources, especially gold. Unlike in the medieval period, men in the pre-modern world sought the chance to advance themselves through the prospects of trade and conquest. Great personal wealth could be achieved through the service to companies like the British East India Company. The Dutch, British, and French formed joint stock companies that created government-sponsored monopoly trading companies. These joint stock companies pooled the resources of investors and limited the company's reliance on any one individual. Unlike companies today, these companies maintained armies and navies, had the power to declare war, make treaties, and write laws in the regions it controlled. Shares of these companies became a considerable portion of the commercial paper traded on their respective stock exchanges, resulting in capital increasingly becoming a commodity. With this, the practice of speculation began to grow meaning great fortunes could be made and lost in a period of weeks. Short selling developed, as did trading houses or brokerage firms. Like in the modern era, these swings in the stock market not only affected those in the financial sector, but the economy in general. Speculative bubbles, such as the tulip mania in 1637, the South Seas bubble of 1720, and the Mississippi bubble in 1720 as well, which helped lead to the science of economics to try and scientifically avoid such events. In 1775, Adam Smith tried to argue that the market was a natural force, like nature, but it had to be tempered by the state, although he stressed that the state shouldn't stifle the market as well. Smith's ideas would go on to inspire many economists, including Marx. Another element that drove the physical expansion of new markets in the merchant capitalist era was slavery. With the large-scale decline of the population of natives in the Americas, the Spanish and Portuguese were in need of labor in their Latin American empires. Meanwhile, in the Caribbean and North America, labor was needed for the cultivation of cash crops like sugar and tobacco. Unfortunately, Africa became the primary reserve of labor for the Americans as Europeans and American slave traders kidnapped between 11 to 12 million men, women, and children who were sold into slavery from the 16th to the 19th century. They were often confined to a space less than four feet on a journey of between 8 to 12 weeks to cross the Atlantic. At its peak, one ship left Liverpool every other day for slave trading in Africa. The slaves were kidnapped by other Africans and sold to Europeans for weapons or tools. Merchants in Rhode Island and New York also participated greatly in the trade, in the classic triangle trade as they brought tools and supplies to the Caribbean colonies which were traded for molasses in exchange. During their transport and enslavement, Africans were made into a commodity under some of the most inhumane conditions. 
Slave ships were purposely overloaded as slavers knew that between 12 and 15 percent would die of disease in transport to the Americas. Once arriving, especially in the Caribbean, life expectancy wasn't long as a result of brutal working conditions under barbaric conditions of humiliation, physical violence, and sexual rape. So profitable was the sugar and so cruel the plantation owners that they literally worked their slaves to death. The labor force of the Caribbean had to be virtually replaced about every 10 to 13 years. Slavery wouldn't fully be outlawed until 1888 when Brazil became the last Western nation to outlaw the practice. Unfortunately, blacks in the Americas and Africans would continue to face bigotry and cruelty into the late 20th century. Finally, prestige drove the Europeans to build empires. They competed against each other to found new colonies and make ever greater cultural and scientific breakthroughs. They also competed to bring, quote, civilization to other regions of the world, mainly through European subjugation and spreading of the Christian faith. This competition between the European powers from the 17th to the early 19th centuries led to some of the largest wars in human history up to that time and were some of the first global conflicts. British and French forces would clash from the forests of the Ohio Valley to the jungles of the Caribbean to the open waters of the Indian Ocean. Various combinations of European states would wage war against each other in a series of eight world wars between 1689 and 1815 for a total of 63 years. Out of these events, ideas about economics and the wars between the European powers Central banks and the bond market were formed as a way of governments to borrow money to field armies and fit out navies. The Dutch actually created the first modern banking system, one that used bills of exchange backed by gold and bank vaults and worked out a way to lend money backed by collateral, especially real estate, a forerunner to the modern mortgage system of today. The Bank of England, however, became the most important financial institution of the 18th and 19th centuries. Sure of its power to repay loans because of its publicly stated taxes, British financiers were willing to lend money to the government. The difference between contemporary capitalism and merchant capitalism of the 1600s to early 1800s is that this form of capitalism was primarily based on trade and finance and had not yet spread to production. Capitalism spread to production and the subsequent Industrial Revolution in many respects began in agriculture first. Farmers in Holland realized that they could abandon the medieval practice of leaving a third of their land to lie fallow each year to regain nutrients. Instead of the fallow rotation, they divided their land into four parts, rotating fields of grain, turnips, hay, and clovers each season. Not only did this increase the number of tilled acres by a third, but the clover-fed livestock after it had enriched the soil with nutrient and deposits. The English copied the Dutch and succeeded in making their agricultural base feed more and more people with fewer laborers and less investment. Unlike the Dutch, the English had enough arable land to grow the grains that fed the people as well as their livestock. To illustrate the impact of this, in 1520, 80% of the English population worked in farming. 100 farmer families could produce enough food to feed 125 families. Those extra 25 families constituted the English military, clergy, royal officials, and everyone else and in non-farming activities. With the advances in farming from 1600 on, fewer and fewer people were involved with farming. By 1800, one farming family grew enough for 60 other families. Before the mid-1700s, the world population had expanded and contracted for 3,000 years. 
But since that time, in the mid-18th century, the world's population has continued to expand to the present era. This agricultural revolution would have a profound impact on the economy and the society. With less and less people needed in farming, the large medieval farming communities of the past started to break down, and with it, the ceremonies and culture of those societies. People became disentangled from their larger community and a network of community obligations and activities. It permitted individuals to organize their own resources and brought about greater inequality on the local level. The awareness of a common fate faded when principal producers became single families rather than a community of villagers coordinating their seasonal tasks. In this agricultural revolution, many lost their jobs and livelihood. Concerns with the rise of homelessness and the destitute, the English passed the poor laws at the end of the 16th century. It established two overseers for the poor in each parish, the basic unit of local government, who would see to them receiving food and work. During this period, our records show that more than half of the English population received some form of charity each year. On average, though despite the loss of work after the mid-17th century, the specter of famine receded into the past, although chronic malnutrition lasted for many into the 19th century. This freed up more people and resources. Moreover, by 1700, the average Englishman and woman earned much higher wages versus other Europeans. Studies suggest that they also ate better on average. England had a large and growing working class capable of buying low-end consumable goods like cutlery and cheap printed pictures. This fueled domestic growth and, through the British Merchant Marine, was now connected to a vast international and imperial marketplace. By this time, Great Britain had become a highly homogeneous state in contrast to other nations like France or Italy. It had one monarch and government, one language, one established church, a single legal system, a vigorous press, and a single national market, making it easy for people and goods to move. London quickly became a great metropolis, with more than half a million inhabitants in 1690. It was Europe's largest city and still growing. Some 10% of England's 5 million people lived in London. Despite its high mortality rates, London attracted between eight to 10,000 outsiders annually, most of whom we suspect were young men and women leaving their small villages, towns, and hamlets. Roughly one-sixth of the English lived in London sometime in their lives. Coming into contact with London, the city of government, economic center, and cultural matrix spread ideas, cultivated taste, and stimulated desires. Despite the use of slaves to stimulates like coffee, sugar, and tobacco to have people work longer hours, there was an ever greater demand for labor power in the economy. Stimulates were a stopgap and could not grow the labor force, and wages were relatively high. Slaves were costly to acquire, keep alive, and one faced the dangers of rebellion, not to mention the ethical questions surrounding slavery. This gave push to inventors who began a technological saga to harness machines to do the work of man and animals. Drawing on 17th century scientific experiments in hydraulics and hydrostatics, these pioneer engineers designed mechanical slaves which could harness energy. England was also helped by a plentiful supply of cheap coal which was used to fuel their industry and was generally more efficient than burning wood which had to be conserved for shipbuilding. Banks also played a critical role in the Industrial Revolution as they funneled the capital into industries making savers into investors. Banks were able to aggregate the wealth of their customers, lending these funds to businessmen to make investments and build companies. 
Usually everyone won as savers receive interest payments on their savings, but when the banks failed, everyone suffered. During this time, the first factories and mills were established employing the power of water and later steam to drive the Industrial Revolution, which began one of the oldest controversies of capitalism. What responsibility towards employees do employers have, if any? Should they be able to dismiss workers when demand for the things they produced had collapsed? The issue got sustained attention in the 1620s when English clothers suffered from the effects of a cloth glut in Europe. The expansion of English wool exports in the previous decades had created unemployment for an increasing number of families. People were used to natural disasters or bad weather, but distress caused by the market seemed different, even if the effects were the same. The debate didn't go away. A downturn in trade in the early 17th century created more debate. Thomas Munn, a major figure in the East India Company, argued that nothing the English authorities could do could stop a recession or economic downturn. Munn contended that the trade was a system of impersonal and largely autonomous interactions. Munn was a contemporary of the famous philosopher Sir Francis Bacon, often credited with moving the 17th century natural philosophy towards the science of observation and analysis. Through Munn, we can see the effects of the Enlightenment take an influence on economics. In denying the power of the sovereign to control commerce, Analysts did not suggest that the individual market decisions were random or idiosyncratic. Instead, they searched for a relevant cause-and-effect relationship, assuming a uniformity of operating at all levels. The British monarchy and government were very pro-science as well. The Royal Society was founded in 1662, which promoted and protected experimentation. It promoted studies, such as the study of the potato, as a food source. As Great Britain was growing ever greater as an industrial power, another new nation had come into being, America. America had been formed from a portion of Britain's North American colonies, which had declared independence, doing away with the English monarchy and the formal system of aristocracy. Capital in America always played a divisive role in American politics since its inception. Alexander Hamilton and many other merchants wanted to have America follow the path of Great Britain as a great maritime commercial empire. Hamilton envisioned America with great port cities, a great merchant marine, and a strong central bank. In contrast to other Americans like Thomas Jefferson, who envisioned a republic of independent yeoman farmers, despite the fact he himself owned a large plantation farmed by slaves. The first roughly 90 years of the American Republic would be a battle between these two visions of America. The Democrats, under Jefferson and later Andrew Jackson, would succeed in limiting Hamilton's vision of America. The Whigs and later the Republicans would argue for free labor as opposed to slave labor, modernization, banking, and economic protectionism to stimulate manufacturing. Despite the election of two Whig presidents, the Democrats continued to dominate American politics. The rise of slavery as an issue of contention in the United States saw the Republicans win elections in the North. After the election of 1860, Lincoln became president. This caused a civil war as this this was something the Southern Democrats wouldn't tolerate given Lincoln's negative views on slavery. The market value of slaves in 1860 was almost $3 billion, a sum greater than the value of all the manufacturing and railroads in the United States. Lincoln's hostility to the expansion of slavery to the western states of the United States was viewed as a threat to the economic system of the South and a racial danger. 
Southern Democrats argued that if slavery couldn't expand, it would become stagnant in the South and that eventually Yankee abolitionists like John Brown would try and bring freedom to the Negroes. If blacks became free, they contended, blacks would have to be allowed to vote, and if they voted, they could marry white women, and hence would cause an amalgamation of the races. Many Americans at the time were highly racist and believed that the intermixing of the races would bring about a decline of intelligence and culture and bring down the society. With the Southern Democrats' defeat in the Civil War as the Confederate States of America and only a few remaining Northern Democrats, they were virtually eliminated as it blocked the Republican plans for the economy. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 7, Part 1, Capitalism. Join us for Episode 7, Part 2, Capitalism, where we will continue to look at the economic and social system of capitalism. Feel free to rate us on iTunes, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of the Cold War Podcast and Twitter at Cold War Podcast to find our latest news and Cold War content. I know some have had trouble trying to find us on Facebook, so if you check out our SoundCloud page, you can find the link in the description. So just Google SoundCloud and then search the SoundCloud website for the podcast. And don't forget to feel free to email questions at coldwarpodcast at gmail.com. Cold War Podcast, one word. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.